Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, the cross-channel booze cruise of Brexit podcasts, where every week we travel to the continent and come back laden with material that could give you a terrible headache and an upset stomach. Please enjoy this podcast responsibly. My name is Dorian Linsky and I'm joined as ever by Romaniacs' own double acts, the Liam Fox and Philip Hammond of Evercloser Union, Ian Dunt and Peter Collins. Jesus Christ. <laughs> And Jesus Christ. <laughs> Ian Dunst is the editor of politics.co.uk and the author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm very well indeed. Thank you. This week you've been dreadfully upset. Netflix is no longer going to mail out DVDs. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's so good. It's a country going to hell. It is, in a handbasket. Um, I got to write about that and then I got to talk about it on the radio and it was so nice, like the luxury of not talking about Brexit or tariffs or something like that. And actually just being able to talk about movies and, you know, and the differences between what it's like to, to, to really geek out on something or just to be a sort of more passive consumer about things and how nice it is to sometimes have sort of free choice taken away and being forced to watch or listen to a particular thing rather than just having this sort of oppression of choice that you get given on streaming services. And I spent the whole time thinking, it's lovely not talking about Brexit, notwithstanding this Yeah, problem, well, I've course. got some <laughs> bad news for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as hello as well to Peter Collins, ex-business editor at The Economist and BBC business reporter, who is now observing Brexit from a safe distance. Hi, Peter. How are you? Uh, very well. I've been busy this week painting the two sheds at the bottom of my garden and, of course, lining them with tinfoil for the coming nuclear winter. Are you, are you Peter Two Sheds Collins? Indeed. Like, that's me, that's... yes. Uh, you must be cheered by the fact that Lord Matt Ridley, the man in charge ah, of yes. Northern Rock, is more confident than ever about Brexit, which is a, is a ringing endorsement. Indeed. Well, he's the sort of contrarian I like to be contrary to, to be honest. And I was reminded of his um, previous career by seeing a long queue of people forming outside Boris Johnson's office this morning. All doctors and nurses asking for the £350 million a week back. How, how did they get on? <laughs> Not very much. <laughs> we have a very special guest this week. It's about time we had more actual Europeans on this pro-Europe podcast. <laughs> Philippe Auclair is a football writer and broadcaster, the England correspondent for France football and a French citizen. In another life, he's also the indie pop musician Louis Philippe, who has recorded for the much-admired cult dream pop label L Records. Over the years, he's worked with the Japanese musician Cornelius, Sean O'Hagan of the High Lamas, Dave Gregory of XTC, and the novelist Jonathan Coe, and now he writes and talks about football. Hello, Philippe. Welcome to Romaniacs. Thank you very much. I've finally found the place where I've always belonged. <laughs> That's good. He said, wearily. <laughs> We're a safe haven. Yeah, so sort of, yes. We'll be talking later about how Brexit is going to affect football, although I have to warn you that none of us are in a position to eye up potential careers as commentators. There's a ball and a, and a field yeah, of some description. Start, men, men running around like nobody's well, you, business. You know, about, you, know, you know as much about football as David Davis knows how European law works, basically. Well, that's good. Yeah. Thanks to him yeah. for, for lowering the bar. One thing first, with Whoa, your musician sorry. hat on, why are British uh -huh. people still so high-handed about French pop? It's been amazing for over 20 it's years. Ignorance. It's ignorance. It's, it's just ignorance. It's the uh, the music never crossed the channel. Um, I mean, there were some tentative efforts in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, when you had people like Bob Stanley, Saint-Etienne, and, and others who were uh, talking about artists like you know, Serge Gainsbourg and Michel Polnareff and Jacques Dutronc. And uh, it's a whole side of, of French popular music, which basically people are not aware of. The fact that we have people who could compare to, you know, like a Ray Davis, for example, and who express themselves in an idiom which is not at all unlike pop as it is known in, uh, in the UK. But even, I mean, now, is it, the sort of, the existence of someone like Daft Punk 
Uh-huh. It's not going to get in the way of Jeremy Clarkson making a jingoistic joke. No, no, or, or air, or... I mean, OK, David Guetta, yes, certainly. <laughs> you can have a go at him. Um, <laughs> so you go, Clarkson, the, go uh, for Guetta. Oh, David Guetta, yes. Who, who is the Johnny Halliday, who is Belgian, by the way, uh, of, uh, of, um, of of whatever, of, of clubbing music and so forth? You know, people have got had problems with reconciling themselves with the idea that you could have fantastic German pop to start with. And and then the Scandies, but now the Scandies are, you know, accepted. And there's an awful lot of great, great shit coming from France, or which used to come from France, and from Spain, and from Italy, which are totally unknown here. People are fairly insular. Kind of jingoistic and insular about, yeah. about their pop music. Yeah. Later on, we'll be talking with Philippe about Brexit and football. Plus, is there a new centrist party in the offing? And why is centrism the new enemy to be denounced? And what's the truth behind that survey by the LSE and Oxford University, which claimed that most Remain voters are now totally cool with Brexit? Is there such a thing as hard remain? And are we it? Before we start with the news roundup, <laughs> please don't forget to subscribe to Romaniac so you never miss an episode of Handcrafted Sabotage. Apple users, you can find us in the podcasts app or on the iTunes music store. Please give us a nice star rating and review when you're there, as it helps us get new listeners. Android users, we're on Acast, Stitcher, Overcast and Pocket Casts too. All the links are at romaniacs.com. Let's round up the Brexit news of the week. The first big development of the week is the final outcome of the summer Brexit war inside the cabinet. You might remember that Philip Hammond was pushing for an indefinite transition period for customs and trade after Brexit, which provoked an unseemly squabble with Liam Fox. The two published a joint statement on Sunday, which was widely interpreted as a humiliating smackdown for Hammond. Now the government has published its first position paper on post-2019 trade. It says the UK will remain in a customs union with the EU for at least the estimated three years of transition after Britain's exit, not necessarily the customs union. The FT is saying this appears to be a victory for Hammond, but The Guardian saying Tory hardliners emerge as Cabinet's Brexit war winners. Peter, what's in the position papers, and did Don Felipe really cave in to the unfantastic Mr Fox? Well, big surprise, there's a lot less to this, really, than, than meets the eye. First of all, you've got Hammond and Fox having their, a meeting uh, saying that they agree that we'll be out of the EU customs union during, even during the transition. Uh, In fact, what the position paper says is that we'll be in something that is pretty much the EU customs union during the transition. And even afterwards, one of the two big options uh, is that we expect to have uh, pretty much membership of the EU customs union, except that we have the right to negotiate our own trade deals, just assuming that the EU will be somehow persuaded to to agree to this. Um, The FT said it appeared to be a victory for Hammond in that he is the government's leading advocate of a soft transition. But what we're more interested in as Romaniacs is not that he's just the advocate of a soft transition, but he was the advocate of a soft Brexit. In other words, a few months ago, Hammond was widely quoted, presumably as a result of briefing from his people, that he wanted Britain to stay in the customs union after Brexit. Um, now he's sort of saying with Liam Fox that we're definitely leaving the EU customs union uh, at the end of the transition period. But let's let's just examine this. You know, there's two options in the position paper. One is that we really do bring back um, customs barriers between Britain and the EU and the rest of the world. And we just try to make it all as smooth as possible somehow with some amazing IT system that will do everything. Even though, even in this option, um, there's various areas in which Britain just assumes that the EU will continue treating trade with Britain more or less in a similar way to to, to now, as if it were in a customs union. And in option two, well, let's have a look at this. You know, um, 
basically, in, in return for charging EU tariffs for goods that are passing through Britain on their way to the EU, we get complete access to the EU market um, and no custom checks at all. Um, you know, there's a lot of verbiage in, in the report that tries to disguise this, but that's essentially what it is. What, what, we're, what we're saying is our, one of our two options is to have a custom design membership of the EU Customs Union in all but name with addition, additional freedom to, to, to negotiate our own tr trade deal. So in other words, we are back to having our cake and eating it. And that's basically just to cover up the cracks in the cabinet, just to assume this is this is what we'd like to. Can I, I'm sorry, this is turning about a bit wordy, but there's one really interesting thing that I don't think anybody else has spotted so far. If you read the bit where it's saying about the independent trade policy, there's some very strange language. It says the UK would seek to pursue its independent trade mm. policy. Not it would pursue, it would seek to pursue. And then lower, lower down, there's another one. The UK would intend to pursue. Uh, there's uh, a lot of a, things I intend yeah, to pursue no, that I never no, do. This, well, it's, the, because they, it's because they don't know what they're talking yeah. about. They, when you ask them about it, yeah. they don't even know whether it's formal negotiations, whether it's talks, whether it's ratification, whether it's implementation. They have absolutely no idea what those words really mean. And on top of that, you know, these things, as you, as you know, the, all, the, all the ministers and all the departments will have argued like cats in a sack about the exact wording. These words mm -hmm. don't appear by at random. It's almost as if there's the hand of the Treasury on this and the hand of Phil Hammond saying, let's just make it clear that we're aspiring to do our own trade deals in this thing in which we essentially stay in the customs union so that if we have to beat another humiliating retreat and stay and uh, accept that in order to stay more or less in the customs union and not have all of these barriers, we can't have our own trade. We just, it, was just, it was just an aspiration. We only said that we'd seek to pursue it. Doesn't, doesn't, do you think that's a plausible conspiracy theory I'm... Yeah, well, or the, the alternative is that they just don't know what they're doing and what any of these words really entail. Certainly, the officials seem as confused as anyone as to what any of this stuff means. The, the second position paper on the Irish border came out this morning. This is recorded on Wednesday morning, and the lock-in was today and recently finished. And there they seem to be sort of preventing themselves from doing any future trade deals because there's a point where they're really worried about agri-foods. It was really difficult to get that kind of agricultural product across the border in that way. They're very, very concerned about what they're going to do about those checks there. So they say, well, what if we just promise that we're going to maintain regulatory equivalence with the EU on agri-food? Now, that is an astonishing thing for them to have said, because that would basically mean that we are going to maintain exactly the same policy, exactly the same standards for agriculture, for horticulture, for food and drink processing as the Europeans have. Now, if you do that, you can't import, you know, the famous chlorinated chicken from the US and, and the hormone injected beef. You can't import GM. And not only that, but you'd also be a complete sort of hostage to European Court of Justice rulings. So when they talk about these future trade deals, they are already offering things to the Europeans, which make it almost impossible for us to be doing it with the Americans. Now, either that's because, you know, the Treasury is starting to shift things, or it's because they are a bunch of morons and don't realise that when one domino falls over over here, it affects the other dominoes on the other side. Yeah, it should be. Option B. Option B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so exactly, we, we, you know, and we, you, you, as you say, we we can't make all these promises and do any meaningful trade deals with anybody else anyway. So maybe they're pleading with the EU, please let us do this. We know that all of our, we'll agree to all of this stuff. We know that all of our trade talks will fail and we'll essentially be just at the EU customs union with the EU setting that driving the, the, the trade deals. But this is the thing that these these propositions that they're putting forwards. I mean, they're so catastrophically inept. I mean, it's like, a, it's like reading a sci-fi novel. But they don't really amount to a new, to, to the same old customs union. There's a bit where they're talking about a new customs partnership. So it's like a blob of custom union on the edge of the European custom union. But uh, 
I now need to explain country of origin, so I'm going to make it as, as painless and as, as quick as humanly possible. The reason that we talk about country of origin checks is because you're trying to find out where a product is from when it reaches the edge of your customs union. You need to do that for one very specific reason. Let's say that, like the EU, you have a free trade agreement with South Korea, and that that means you've got zero tariffs on a good. There is now an incentive for a country like Japan to send its goods to South Korea and then through South Korea to send it to the EU. So country of origin checks are there to protect you against people undercutting your external tariff arrangements. Our proposal for what we're going to do under this customs sort of, you know, this customs club that we're going to form with the EU is that we will either track all goods that come in through the UK until they are purchased anywhere in the EU in order to show that that good ended up in the EU rather than the UK. I mean, just to even think about what that would entail, every banana, every piece of furniture, every component part of a larger product, that the official position of the British government in that position paper is that it's going to try and track every single one of those, which is obviously just an act of extraordinary lunacy. Their other idea for this would be that it comes in, everything pays the top tariff as it enters. So let's say the EU has 10% on bananas, we have 5% on bananas. The banana comes into the UK, everyone gets charged at 10%, and then exporters have to go to the UK and prove that they sold their stuff in the EU in order to get refunded on the other 5% of the tariff. Like The full extent of that red tape is almost unimaginable, and yet it's thrown out in this paper by these people who've been banging on about red tape for the last 20 years as if it was absolutely nothing at all. You look at it, and it is, it is honestly just the, the made-up nonsense of a bunch of children writing their own fairy tale. But it's and our red tape. <laughs> yes, that's it. That's all we can say. And also, if you compare that idea of tracing down every last banana, every packet of crisps, etc., etc., to its final user, we have uh, a, lot, a lot of evidence from around the world about what happens. So you look at places like Southeast Asia, South America, both uh, regions I've worked and covered, covered trade in, what happens if you have all these complicated things that say you, you, you have to pay all the taxes unless you fill all the paperwork to get your rebate. People don't, get, people don't bother with the rebate. You're effectively imposing the tariff on everybody. So therefore, we would end up imposing whatever tariffs the EU has. Yeah, well, exactly, which is just half of their, of their plan with really no get out for anyone who has to go through it. Well, there's more position paper fun to come. It, it almost so looks it like you're grateful for us to stop talking about <laughs> customs union, Durin. <laughs> it's what I could turn up for. <laughs> on to our second item. Miliband is back. No, not that one. Last weekend, David Miliband reappeared on the British political scene with a call in the Observer for a second referendum. He called Brexit an unparalleled act of economic self-harm and said that delegating to May and Davis, never mind Johnson and Fox, the settlement of a workable alternative to EU membership is a delusion, not just an abdication. This all comes against the background of the war on centrism, which we'll be talking about later. Ian, is uh, Miliband's intervention going to make any difference, or, or is it too little to do? No. No. I can't really be trusted on this. I just find him so unspeakably tiresome, and I always did. You know, there's always this idea of he was the great saviour of Labour that, that never came. If you remember all the way back, when they were all trying to stab Brown without admitting it, he would occasionally do these impenetrable, really long essays in The Statesman that you would read. You know, they're all in the passive tense, incredibly boring. And you sort of, at the end of it, you just think, like, I think what you're saying is you want to be Prime Minister? But that seems to be the overall <laughs> I don't know message. why people got excited about him. I thought he was like a, a decent foreign secretary. But as a kind of future leader of Labour and, you know, the, the party, the movement, mm. the left, 
I, I didn't buy it at all. Well, you'd always hear this phrase like, he can do human, which is the, the most extraordinary base level of expectation that we would have for a political career, that they can even appear like a human being, and that somehow, in and of itself, he, he would be enough to suggest for leadership. So, he floats some people's boats. I mean, the idea is, it's almost, he's going to walk across the water from New York, yes. and, and, you know, having handed the control of International Rescue back to Jeff Tracy, <laughs> you know, he is the Messiah cometh. <laughs> well, he had to say, what he's saying here is, I mean, we've heard this before. From, we may even have said this before. So it's sort of the only thing that he's adding is not some kind of fresh take. It's the fact that it's him saying it. Yeah, that's basically it. And if I, I'm starting to... Look, I have this sort of principle of no enemies in Remain. Basically, no matter what they said before, no matter what you know position they may have held before, if they're on side now, all allies are good allies from wherever they are on the spectrum and whatever I think of them personally. I am getting a bit bored of these sort of deceased political careers just rising from the dead on the Remain side and I'm constantly looking around for can there be a fresh face somewhere someone new and dynamic that isn't tainted with the past you know whether it's Tony Blair or Nick Clegg or, yeah. or anyone else and he just seems to so so stereotypically fall into that category that even I find it very hard to get excited about the whole thing Sorry David <laughs> Finally we haven't had a decent Euro Fat Cat story in a few weeks this week the mail gave us Junkit Juncker Better if you just mispronounce his name. Junkit Junker lavishes 24 grand of taxpayer cash on an air taxi, an aeroplane, for Rome jaunt. Eurocrats have fought for years to keep that and £425,000 of his friend's travel costs secret from you, the British taxpayer. Apparently, the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker spent €25,000 on a private plane to take a nine-person delegation to Rome. Peter, apart from the understandable desire to use that headline... Uh, is there anything in this story? Well, on the one hand, on the other hand. On the one hand, you know, if eight or nine or whatever executives from Rolls-Royce or British Aerospace had to go off to Europe for a quick meeting and needed to be flexible, they needed to escape security problems, they needed to be able to change the time and, and so on, and they needed to be able to discuss confidential matters among themselves during the flight, in other words, do work during the flight, it wouldn't be any problem to spend two to £3,000 a head um, I don't know whether that's a good quote or whether they could have got it down to maybe 1500 I have no idea, or maybe they got a bargain. But the point is, no big deal. On the other hand, you know, we as Romaniacs absolutely don't have to be apologists for anything that the EU does wrong. We shouldn't be cornered into being apologists for anything the EU does wrong. One of the reasons I want Britain to stay, it's not the biggest reason, but one of the reasons I want Britain to stay in the EU is the fact that our savage news media, for all their faults, do at least ask and press away on these sorts of tough questions about expenses and the efficiency of policies and so on. I want us to stay in and help reform the EU. It, it, it's a reason to stay in, not a reason to quit for me. They've always been quite bad at the optics. True. Haven't they? There's a lot of these kind of stories. Yes, they're exaggerated. Yes, they use a stick to beat the whole project with. But a lot of the time, these are just like Dumb, careless, complacent. I think decisions. it's because maybe they've got a lot of the domestic media on board. We have a a, a guest from France here. Is mm -hmm. that true? That you know that it's it's that, that um, EU politicians who are not British don't have as much pressure to justify their expenses and so on. It's, let's say a French politician who's an I, EU commissioner. I, I would say so, but this said, I'm so uh, enmeshed with uh, British life and British political life and for so long that I'm not sure that I can give a correct answer to that. Uh, judging by um, when I, I read the Canal Chenet from time to time, which is the equivalent of private eye in France, uh, or other weeklies, because most of our investigative press in France is not the dailies, well, which are dying anyway, but the weeklies, you know, like L'Express, Le Point, Marianne and so forth. And yes, there is there is some uh, uh, focus on 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 this, and th there is a system of uh, there is 
that there is something, but nothing com- like what is done in Britain. And those are the Brexit headlines. God, I wish they weren't. We met him a little earlier in the show. We're delighted to have Philippe Auclair as our special guest on this week's Romaniacs. Philippe is France football's England correspondent and a writer for The Blizzard. He's the author of the award-winning Cantona, The Rebel Who Would Be King, and Thierry Henry, Lonely at the Top. And he makes psychedelic dream pop as his alter ego, Louis Philippe. <laughs> he has very graciously come in to talk Brexit and football with three total novices who think that Catanaccio is either the Italian finance minister or a trance DJ. It would be a good name for a trance DJ. Fili- it would. Yeah, it would be cool. Absolutely. Uh, Philippe also gave the thuggish Leave.eu Twitter a proper slapdown after Marine Le Pen lost the French presidential election. (laughs) Aaron Banks' alt-right bullshit machine said, The French rolled over in 1940. This time they saved Germany the fuel and bullets. And Philippe replied, My great-uncle rolled over, it's true, when he was mown down by Wehrmacht bullets attacking a convoy of German tanks in 1940. Fuck you. Hello, Philippe. As a Frenchman, where are you on the Romaniac scale? Do you, do you want us to stay, or are you have sick a of guess it? from from ten to ten? <laughs> right. Yeah, I have a guess. Eleven. Uh, yeah, eleven. I'm some sn- spinal tapish on this one. I I, I I want a Romaniac amp that goes actually even to twelve <laughs> or, or, or or higher if at all possible. I'll make it Fahrenheit. There's supposed to be the split, isn't there, with the Germans quite keen for Britain to stay, and even politically, you know, mm. even if it was at the eleventh hour of Britain petition, the Germans would probably accept it. The idea being that the French are just like very keen for it to be done now and for Britain <laughs> to have gone already. Do you, do you think there's any truth to that? And, and is there truth sort of among some, the French public? It's a, it's 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 funny because it has a a lot since um, 24th June um, uh, 2016, my birthday, uh, as I never Unhappy tire birthday. from. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I woke up. Actually, I didn't sleep that night. But uh, hey, uh, you're, you're 127. I felt like I was 127 <laughs> that morning. And it, it at the beginning, people were just looking at it thinking, British. <laughs> yeah, what? Um, then there were the, the, the souverainistes, as we call them, um, well, basically ultra-nationalists who said this is fantastic this is what we should uh, the example we should follow these ones are much quieter now than they were about a year or even six months ago and I think now the the general attitude to it is just to have a laugh just to, to point at the British thing <laughs> in the French election there were two candidates who were pretty pro-Frexit as I'm sure nobody in France calls it Mélenchon and Marine Le Pen do you think that sort of watching what's happening in Britain affected voters' behaviour there? For Marine Le Pen, it's, it's a strange thing. You know, one of the first things they did after the election was to dump the idea that the franc should come back instead of the euro. So they're softening their position on Europe quite dramatically because they've realised it was a big vote loser in France. Where, if I trust the last um, polls, um, people in favour of membership um, is well in the, it's in, in the high 60s, as it is more or less throughout Europe since Brexit, by the way. Mm. And uh, if I look at Mélenchon, Mélenchon is, um, is a protest candidate. And many of the people who voted for Mélenchon are a bit like people who voted for Corbyn uh, in this country. And um, people who are fundamentally, emotionally and intellectually Europhiles, but who are completely at odds with a leader who is an old-style Stalinist and um, haven't quite realised it and are slowly waking up to the reality. Um, so I would say that the anti-European discourse is not a vote winner in France. It, 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 as a matter of fact, it's not a vote winner in, in Europe, uh, even in countries where it's not going particularly well, mm. and which, where you could say, well, the European Union has played a role in our country being you know, in a difficult position at the moment. It has changed a lot, and, and that's, that's one of the positives of Brexit, is that it has certainly hardened the support for Europe on, on the continent. 
And as for the uh, popular game of football, mm. can you explain how Brexit would uh, <laughs> would affect that? Because freedom of movement, uh, yeah. is, is, is that responsible for creating the sort of yeah. international I mean, Premier first, League as we know it? The, the first team, well, yes, you're not, I mean, I would say no, it's the Bosman um, the, the, the Bosman um, regulation, which is, I'm, I'm not going to go into details for non-specialists, but which was about freedom of movement and freedom of employment within the European Union, how European law, employment law was not reflected in the way footballers were treated, and, and that which is absolutely true. So that was changed that had a, a huge impact on, on football, not just in Britain, but everywhere else. But the first consequence, of course, on, on, on English football was, of course, the fact that sterling is now monopoly money. And, um, you know, when you are negotiating deals on the 23rd of June and it's one euro 30 cents, and now you find yourself under one euro 10 cents where you've lost an awful of purchasing power, but also your means to pay top dollar or top euro or top sterling to the people you, you have coming from the continent from elsewhere. So you are at a disadvantage and there has been a direct impact on that. One of which being the fact transfer fees in Britain have shot up. People say, oh, it's because they're all crazy. They've got all this TV money coming in partly. But people forget it also has to do that if you buy a player, let's say from OGC Nice in France or from uh, Bayer Leverkusen in Germany, suddenly you've got to cough up at least 15 or to 20 percent more mm. to get that player. And also in terms of salary, because you're going to have to convince the guy, hey, you're paid in sterling. Now, there are safeguards, as there are in every industry, about currency movements. As you know, I mean, you, you will have a kind of balancing system which is uh, inbuilt within the, the, the contract. But it has had a huge impact. Now, the second thing, and that in, in this, football is just like all the other industries in, in, in the UK. And it is, let's not forget, one of the most successful industries in the UK, is um, in a situation where nobody has got any idea of what is going to happen. And I mean nobody. The Premier League was very much in favour of remaining within the European Union for an obvious reason, which is the free movement of, of workers within the Union, uh, because you need to get the best players. We tend to get them from, um, uh, from European countries, sometimes players who are Brazilian, but who also have a Portuguese passport or Argentinians who have an Italian passport. So it's crucial. But the problem is that we have absolutely no idea of what's going to happen. Uh, as soon as I think um, late June 2016, some uh, Premier League chair people, chairpersons, whatever, appealed to have special status granted to footballers. I mean, does that ring a bell? You know, mm. barristers, uh, teachers. So you can add footballers to, to the list and saying, well, we have to preserve that because otherwise we're going to lose our competitivity on, on the international market. And therefore, uh, English football, which is so popular abroad, which is where is actually its only area of potential growth over the next three to six to ten years, I say three to six to ten years because it's everything is in three-year um, windows in, in, in football in terms of TV rights. Uh, so we, we need to be competitive. If we're not competitive, they, these best players, they, bet, better players, they're going to go somewhere else. We're going to lose our attractivity. We won't be able to negotiate TV rights, which, has, which are as generous as what they have been with other European countries and, and the USA and China and so forth because this is our one area of growth. We've hit... The, the ceiling in terms of money we can generate from England. And I would say it's likely actually that the TV rights might go down. They were inflated artificially uh, for the next um, set of dates, which is 2019, 2022. But elsewhere, there's still potential for growth. But for that, you have to have a product. 
when I talked to Richard Scudamore, who is the chairman of the Premier League, and I asked him to describe what, he, what he's selling, he's not saying I'm selling football, he's saying I'm selling a show. And then the show has got to have the best guys in town. If, it's, if it hasn't, it's not successful. And suddenly you find yourself, you were in Vegas, and you find yourself in Blackpool. <laughs> Yesterday, Gary Lineker uh, tweeted, the get stuck in mentality has held the game back in this country. Brain over brawn might not excite British fans, but it's the future. We'd sort of put a kind of almost like a, a leave remain frame over <laughs> arguments about football that people have been having for years. Mm-hmm. I mean, has there always been a kind of a, like a sort of political dimension to disagreements about the English style and the European style? Yes, very much so. Um I, I, I could almost tell you by reading the prose of some of my colleagues and, and some all of them very fine men and women, of course, but whether they voted remain or leave, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> wow. I can. Um, yeah, because you've got on one hand the, what I would call the 1966 generation, the people who were, at the time, they were children, but oh, they were raised in this uh, incredible, they they. They were, t- they were told that when they went to bed at night, they were told the golden legend of Bobby Moore and his, um, you know, his band of merry companions winning the World Cup. And uh, that, was, you know, that was the proof that English football was superior to, to everything else. And there are people who are still living off that, just the same way there are still people who live off the empire and so forth, and you, you carry on. And um, so these people can, were very much in the leave camp because they perceive what is abroad, what is foreign as a threat to the idea they have of England, not Britain, England. And uh, they are, these people are not the majority. I think if you, even the people who write, and I'm not going to give names, but people who write for publications which were very much on the uh, right, if not far right um, side of, of, of the media uh, before and after the referendum are people who are Remainers. Honestly, it's it's like uh, 95% really. And um, because we travel a lot, you know, we, we do understand what globaliz- globalization is about. We understand what Europe is about. And we also think of things like um, what happens to the fans, you know, and then to say, um, okay, uh, Brexit, Brexit, and, you know, back to this insular ways and the, the hard tackle, you know, and our foreign football, foreign muck and all this sort of shit. But what happens when your team is playing against, um, I don't know, uh, Red Bull or Salzburg or whatever? Nobody has thought one second about that. You've got 3,000 people traveling to uh, Austria or Italy or France or Spain or Malta. And in football as well, which is so typical of Brexit nonsense, we're going to have, and we already have, a huge discussion, it's a bit like Hammond and Fox, between the Premier League and the FA. The Premier League is remain, hard remain. The FA is very much the 1966 generation. They say it's an opportunity for us to have more English players in the Premier League. And they are complete loggerheads. And at the moment, it hasn't exploded yet because England is still, well, the UK is still part of the European Union. So you can expect a massive power struggle and complete mayhem as soon as things start to gel into a situation which you can analyse, which might never never happen, touch wood. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's a complete mess, basically, uh, in, in that as in everything else. I mean, talking about exemptions, about um, footballers being given special permits, because suddenly people realise, hold on a minute, my favourite player at Manchester United is Juan Mata, who is Spanish, and he's a wonderful player. He's twice the player of the year with Chelsea. 
is Spanish, he's an inter- Spanish international, but with the current laws, regulations, excuse me, in terms of work permits, if he were considered to be exactly like somebody who is a non-EU national, he would never have got a work permit. And slowly people are starting to realise hey, it's a bit more complicated than we thought on this nonsense, you know. And, and where, do we place, where, where do we place the limits? And, and, and what about um, footballers playing at a lower level? Should we have two different classes of citizens here? Because the same regulations don't apply at the moment for the English league, which is the lower divisions, and the Premier League. It's not the same regulation. It's complete mess. Right? What a surprise. It's, it's, yeah, it's, a, hmm. it's a dog's breakfast. Or a pig's breakfast, or any kind, or an octopus's <laughs> breakfast, any any kind of breakfast, animals breakfast. Yeah, exactly. Do you think in this area that sort of money? I mean, apart from that point you made about exchange rates. Yeah. Do you think that in the end money will sort of win out? That that this is so important. It is so important. That, yeah. That for, something's going to be not, done, and not, not just for economic reasons. Yeah, the Premier League is not just going to lose happily kind of lose no but what you've got no no that's why I say every time I've been asked this question ever Mm. since ever since 24th Mm. I've always said the Premier League will find a way to carry on its merry way and carry on making a lot of money it's in the interest of absolutely everybody starting with themselves that they make a lot of money also it matters so much to the cultural psyche um, of 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 England and again I stress England that we have to find a solution and we'll find one we'll just um, sort of crowbar something which makes that um, makes makes the Premier League carry on, as I said. But the big problems, of course, that you will have to do some explaining. Why should these people have privileges that the rest don't have? Right. Which yeah. is the same for barristers, farm workers, or you will end up, which is likely, if this nonsense carries on to its completely logical end, you'll have exemptions for absolutely everybody. <laughs> and <laughs> it will be exactly the same, except that we'll have to... Uh, to have regulations for every single, you know, for every single occupation. I don't know what my status is going to be, honestly. Mm. I have no idea. I'm a freelance writer and broadcaster. So what am I supposed to do? Well, you've been here for... 30 years. Yeah. 31 years. So, I mean, you would apply for the new system, obviously. I refuse to do so. I don't think that it's right for me to do so. That's my resistance. That's the way they think. I absolutely... I, I'm going to fight, but I'm not going to compromise over the rights that I have and which were the rights I had when I came here. So I, I encourage all my fellow Europeans who are, like me, long-term residents here. We don't, we're not migrants or anything. We live here. I'm a Londoner. I encourage them to have a complete non-cooperation with the British authorities. Zero. This is proper 12 out of 10 maniac behavior this is i think we, we can go up to 13 on this one i can't see why i should i mean i, I don't want to exaggerate but I, I don't want to uh to be in a situation of somebody who has to justify his presence here but where do you think that ends i mean if, if you refuse to do it and that that is the system that comes in does that not end with you basically being deported is that what you're saying that you'll take it to the well line? go on have a have a go man <laughs> A lot of people would have to be. Yeah, they do need an awful lot. So you'll have to do an EDM in basically with us. Yeah. Okay, do it. I'm I'm absolutely clear in my mind. I've talked to my my wife, and my family about it. That's my position, and I'm going to stay true to it. As the Australians would okay. say, good on you. Mm-hmm. Okay, the next European Championships in 2020 will be post-Brexit. So let's all look forward to England winning it with a team composed of plucky young kids from mill towns, chain-smoking old pros with dark secrets, <laughs> mysterious strikers with magic boots. And the extraordinary thing is that next Euro is going to be played all over Europe. It's going to be played in tons of cities. It's not happening in England or in France. It's happening all over Europe with uh, the final at Wembley.
So that's going to be great fun for the, the fans <laughs> traveling everywhere. <laughs> Fantastic. Imagine the, imagine the paperwork. As we mentioned at the start of the show, there is a spectre haunting British politics, the spectre of centrism. To the delight of the politically homeless, the prospect of a new anti-Brexit centre party has resurfaced. Born-again Remainer James Chapman, who was David Davis's chief of staff, says that two current cabinet ministers and a few senior Tories and Labour figures are up for the idea which he has christened the Democrats. Unfortunately, this idea has been swept up in a tide of score-settling gossip about former colleagues as Chappers attempts to use up his annual allowance of tweets in a single month. So currently it seems like a one-man ban, but this would seem perhaps like manna from heaven to people who don't fancy two main parties which both advocate a hard Brexit, may include people listening to this podcast. This seems to have brought out the very angry side of the left, with influential voices like Owen Jones, Abby Wilkinson, Laurie Penny and Paul Mason all wading into the centrists. Oh, God. What? <laughs> That's our voluble French guest. <laughs> <laughs> One week, the centrists are globalist, metropolitan elitists who don't care about the left behind. The next, they want to be populists pandering to racist sentiment. Some are implying that all committed Remainers are de facto centrists just because they disagree with the current Labour leadership on this issue. Ironically, Owen Jones claims that centrists actually caused Brexit by endorsing austerity. But who is the typical centrist? George Osborne? Owen Smith? David Brooks from the New York Times? Gary Lineker? Vince Cable? David Miliband? Me? You? Them? <laughs> Ian, what's going on with this idea of a new centre party and why is centrism the new, uh, the new class enemy? See, I just I, I don't think that there is anything going on with the new centrist party. I mean, basically, James Chapman has just tweeted it a bunch and there's nothing going on behind the scenes. There was sort of before the election, you know, Blair had set up his little body and there were some there were quite a few chats going on around there. There was a period where every sort of remainy sort of person you met was just, like, oh, I just came away from lunch with Tony Blair. And you're like, my God, he's meeting an awful lot of people. And there was clearly some sort of project there. I don't think that's been the case for some time, certainly not since the election result. Um, so. The answer is there's absolutely nothing going on with the centrist party. And I don't think it would be a particularly good idea, really. It doesn't really make any sense. We, do, we have just basically had a sort of return to two-party politics. However, I would put this health warning on everything, which is that these are extremely volatile times and things change with a speed with which we could not possibly have predicted. There's also a newfound attribute, I think, to the electorate of just supporting anyone who represents change. I mean, when you saw, I think what we saw in France with Macron didn't seem particularly to be support for his policies, but more that he was the one that was saying change, and therefore they went with him. I think we saw the same thing with Corbyn here, we saw the same thing with Brexit, we saw the same thing with Trump, we are seeing it everywhere. And that does open an opportunity, I think, for those old political brands to disintegrate and for a new force to come in, where things wouldn't be quite like how it was with the SDP, you know, all those years back that are so so fixed people's views on how you can't break away from the two-party system. And yet, it's really hard to deny the result that we had at the last election. And the truth is, beyond him tweeting, there really isn't anything else going on. Well, don't we have a, a centrist pro-Remain party in the Liberal Democrats? That is true. Who, who and a very long very establishment. Well. It's got the, got the history, it's yeah. got the brand. Obviously, all political brands get damaged and have to be polished up again. But yeah, It's not a very good brand at the moment. And they're really struggling to get out from under the tuition fee stuff. I mean, I thought, you know, when, when they got cable, especially unopposed who, you know, politicos may say, well, he obviously fought his corner in government, but most people don't know that. They associate him with that tuition fee stuff. I, I think that brand is, is, is in a really difficult sort of place. The, the interesting thing for me is where this hatred comes from for the name. And I mean, you, you mentioned Laurie You've mentioned a bunch of names of people, some of whom I like and some of whom I don't. And I mean, the Laurie Penny thing, after that Nazi march, the tweet that she saw fit to send was basically attacking centrists for having 
sort of what created Nazism. I, don't, I mean, the, the, the extent of that hatred that they were her targets at this moment, For I just found shocking. They accused them of pandering to racists. And to use this, I know it's a contentious thing, but the David Goodhart, who I don't agree with, but I like it, it's sort of somewhere anyway. Yeah. Divine. Oh, I hate that stuff. Remain a leave, whatever, cr- in crude terms. She seemed to be attacking an entirely different group of people to the group of people that say that Owen Jones was attacking, who seem to be very kind of neoliberal metropolitans. There seemed to be, even between those two tweets, you were just like, I have no idea who the centrists are meant to be. If I may add a question at the tail of your question, I'm wondering if it's not because people like, it's hard to say that name, Owen Jones and and his ilk um, are terrified of one thing, is that there is actually a kind of rational political discourse taking hold, a political discourse as it is happening now. What is happening at at the moment is absolutely perfect for them to pursue their own agenda. They have a space, they've claimed that space. And therefore, for them, the the worst enemy is social democracy. That's one of the reasons I think why they hate Europe. They hate the idea of a successful liberal economy. I think they hate it. And therefore, if you're a centrist... You're a class enemy. Well, because I mean, you represent the acceptable face of liberalism. And therefore, you are the worst enemy because you're the guy who might be actually able to prove that they're talking shit, basically. Well, I wonder whether there's... Because there are people in this sort of, you know, the, the people we're talking about, the critics of centrism, who are... I think they are pro-Brexit. They, they're the kind of... It's that almost Tony Benn... Old Tony Bennett mm. to Europe. I don't know whether that applies to Rowan Jones. I don't know whether that applies to to a lot of these people, but it seems to be that the position on the left on say austerity, uh, when Ed Miliband was in charge, has been to choose principle over pragmatism, and you fight for what's right, even if public opinion is against you, which which it was on austerity at that time. And this feels like a complete reversal. Sort of, we must accept Brexit, however destructive we think it is. So you end up getting people who raged against immigration mugs now attacking freedom of movement for lowering wages. And I think there's a strange kind of blend there of people who are actually um, old-fashioned kind of socialist Eurosceptics and people who who are pro-Europe and campaign for Remain, but are just being ultra-pragmatic. And to defend Corbyn is to defend, in a weird way, a kind of like passive Brexit and to smear those who criticise it. So it's like a sort of, it's like a proxy war. And Mm. I think the kind of... The obscurity of the terms, the kind of muddling of the terms there, it obscures what's actually what's actually going on, you know, sort of who's fighting who. Because, I mean, the word centrist appears to me, I mean, does anyone know what it now is meant to mean? Because it, I've been called a centrist. George Osmond has been called a centrist. I don't think I agree with him on anything mm. except... It's a negative EU. definition, isn't you know, it? it so you, you are not a, a hard left Corbynite and you are not a hard right, hard Brexit UKIPper or from the hard right end of the Conservative Party. You're in favour of moderation in stuff, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, there's a distinction, isn't there? There's the people that really are centrists and who define themselves from the Blair point onwards and the people who took inspiration from him, which is, you know, elections are won in the middle, you find the middle path. For Tony Blair, that classic formulation was the idea of, yes, we accept the free market, but we harness, you know, that money and we drive it towards sort of public services and things. And that was the compromise position. You're always looking for the compromise position because you think that's what people are looking for. Now, that is a particular approach to politics. It's not one that I have, but it isn't one that I think is somehow morally sickening in any way, shape or form. It seems a perfectly respectable and sensible way to go about things. The other part is actually something that doesn't exist, which is the boogeyman. 
And that's really the way that centrist is being used now. Centrist is being used in the same way that neoliberalism was used, which is basically, we don't like you. And you're broadly in the world of being like a slave to the market, of being responsible for austerity and all of this sort of stuff. And there it really doesn't matter what your politics are. All that matters is, are you in bed with Corbyn? Will you support the, the attempt for a revolution or will you not? And I think what we're seeing on that part of the left, on the Corbyn supporting left, is that the election result came in. It was a shock. They you know, got heavily spanked by their former allies for any of them who had started to move away from Corbyn in, in the weeks before that election. And basically what's happened to their thought process is to think my responsibility, my political responsibility, now that there is a chance for socialism in this country, now that there's a chance for a revolution in the way that we do politics is to back, you know, the vanguard of the party, basically, is to back the chance for a change in the way that we do things. And everything is put through that prism. So it doesn't really matter what Corbyn says. He can come out against swimming pools, and tomorrow they will also hate swimming pools. Mm. This is basically the game of I must support the leader, and I must cancel my own critical faculties, or at least put them in service of the leader. Nothing else really matters. And I think really that's what that word centrist means now, is it's just a catch-all label for you're not on our side. It's interesting that therefore sort of Brexit is downplayed, Remainers kind of in some way sort of knocked or given new categories like Mm. kind of militant sort of hard Remainers. And it feels like the the priority of those Corbyn supporters you you talk about is is sort of seizing the Iron Throne. And then we're (laughs) like going... Like the White Walkers of Brexit are coming and they're going to mess up whatever, whoever's on the Iron Throne. Things are going to get really, really messed up. So this podcast is basically Jon Snow running around anxiously pointing at cave paintings and going, seriously, guys, we should focus on this. And they're just like, and just like no, shut up, shut up. We're going to deal with this. And so I feel like there should be some honesty about, look, we want a Labour, Corbyn-led Labour government more than anything else. And we are prepared to sort of throw, you know, we're just prepared to sort of let Brexit yeah. Happen. But there doesn't seem to be, therefore, to, to, to be a kind of, in brackets, hard remainer is seen as like a kind of anti-left position. And it's very, very confusing if you consider yourself a left-wing remainer, that these sort of battle lines are being drawn in peculiar places. Well, I think it smarts more, doesn't it, when you get attacked from that side, if you consider yourself on the left. I can go through months of being attacked by the right and it doesn't really touch very much at all. It doesn't even touch the sides. But when the left come after you with betraying all the principles, you think, oh, come on, man, those are my principles. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> no, I was told this morning that you cannot be, you cannot call yourself left wing unless you wholeheartedly support Corbyn. Mm. And I was like, I don't think you get to go around telling people mm. what their value system is based on one, one man. But I did want to finish by talking about this sort of this, this thing that Owen brought up by Owen Jones about hard remainers. Uh, and, and he was referring to a bunch of people who quite obsessively attack him on Twitter and use a lot of hashtags and use a lot of and Philippe. He blocks me. <laughs> oh, he blocks, he blocks everybody. <laughs> there we go. So, but, so he, but he seemed to be kind of like extrapolating from Twitter beef that there were these kind of like militant, just intolerant, loopy hard remainers who were just kind of like, you know, just hopeless extremists. And do we see on our side, so to speak, do we think there is a kind of uh, faction that is unhelpfully aggressive? That is, is, is there, are there remain extremists? Sort of a bit. There's certainly a lot of catastrophizing. so that if you suggest anything that could be done on the EU side, it's always just like, no, they absolutely will not do that. There's no legal way to do that. And you think, eh, you are massively simplifying what's going on. And some of those exchanges that I've had, I could imagine being very aggressive. I feel sort of faintly 
the stuff that Owen's been writing recently has been very irritating. But also, if you follow him for a while, you see this guy is being given shit by oh, the God. full spectrum, yeah. day in, day out. And there's no way that you can stay emotionally normal with that day in, day out. You know, you're obviously going to start becoming quite hardened to it. And so, so I, I'm sort of sympathetic in that way. And I'm sure there's some people on our side that do that. I have to say... The kind of behaviour I've seen from Corbyn supporters, especially since the election, has just been so vicious, so endlessly aggressive that I can't see that it, it, it adds up to that sort of quantity of brutality. And the same with the way the sort of right wing of Brexit behaved in the months after the vote. So I don't see that. But then I'm not in a very good position to see it because I'm not the kind of person that they're going to be attacking. Right, Ian, exactly. aren't you, yeah. Ian, you're, you will always be much harder on the people you thought had some intellectual honesty and, and are betraying mm, it's it. true. Just a quick opportunity to remind you that our sibling podcast is back from its summer holidays this week. Every week, Big Mouth gets the best entertainment journalists in Britain together to talk about what's new in music, TV, films and books. There's a new episode every Saturday morning and this week they're talking about the war on drugs. That's the name of a band, not the failed government policy. Plus the agony and the ecstasy, the Sky Arts Channel's new documentary series on Acid House and a very strange Mexican horror movie. You can hear Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. There's no better way to clear your mind of EU position papers if only for 45 minutes at a time. Yes, Big Mouth's got talent. (laughs) (laughs) One last topic for today. There's a new survey from the LSE and Oxford University which purports to show what Remain voters really, really want. BuzzFeed trailed it as saying there is more support for harder Brexit options because Leavers and a significant number of Remainers back them. Leave voters were seen to be strong hard Brexiteers, obviously, but Remain voters often felt that the result must be respected. Predictably, the Sun and the Mail seized on this as proof that Britain wants to regain control of its borders and be free of meddling EU judges. I'd gone away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling EU judges. But the methodology was contentious and some of the reporting was highly suspect. Ben Chew in The Independent wrote a great piece breaking it all down and criticising mm. BuzzFeed's faming. Now, Peter, what's going on here? Does this mean that the Leave message that you must respect the will of the people is getting through? It doesn't mean any such thing. I mean, obviously, this wasn't a straightforward opinion poll. It was a, a very complex process in which participants, lots of them, were asked to choose between uh, lots and lots of different sets of quite complex bundles of Brexit outcomes. Let me give you an example. Do you prefer bundle A, which is no Brexit payment, plus a six-year transition period, plus no passport and passport and customs checks, plus no ECJ jurisdiction, plus this, plus this, plus that? Or would you prefer bundle B, which is a £10 billion exit payment, plus a four-year transition, plus full passport and customs checks, plus continued ECJ jurisdiction, plus this, plus plus that. So the idea of this is to try to sort of get some idea of what what trade-offs people will make. The authors of the study have published all of their findings on the excellent LSE Brexit blog, which we always recommend. So if you want to know what's going on, read that. But the point is, they've gone out of their way to insist that you can't do what the news media did and pull out a single figure and claim that it means something. So for instance, they're saying that lots of news media claim that the survey shows that even 29% of Remain voters want all EU systems in Britain to leave. Actually, the authors say this is not what they're saying. What it says is that 71%, in other words, 100 minus 29, 71% of the time, Remain voters would reject the expulsion of EU citizens 
even if the rest of the package were the most marvellous thing in the world. And only 29% of the time would they accept this if everything else was brilliant. Uh, so, in other words, it's still a very strong rejection. You can't just pull out a 29%. On top of this, on top of this point that it was all completely misrepresented, the one thing we should have learned from the last few years is to regard any sort of opinion survey with a little bit of scepticism. I mean, it just goes with well, this... There was no don't-know option, was there? There no. was no yeah. neither no, option. No, exactly, exactly. And it's just... It embodies this assumption, this wrong assumption that the economics profession has that humans are these cold, rational, desiccated, calculating machines that can assign kind of exact amounts of, 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 of value uh, to, to, to a huge range of things that are hard to actually hard to compare. It, it was fair, though, for them to give the, the methodology a shot, I thought. I mean, it's worth, but, it certainly is an ac- academic exercise. And as we often find, if you read the study, the authors mm. are upfront and honest. Yeah, yeah they did good work. Limitations. Yeah, yeah. It, was the, it was really the way the journalists took it yeah, exactly. and, and started talking nonsense about it on the other end. It's also worth mentioning, by the way, that the field work for this was done one week after the snap election was called. So, you know, if you were to do a poll saying, do you think Theresa May is a great prime minister? You would suddenly find that that had very high levels that, that is no longer the case here. There's something else, and this is something that Ben Chu brought up, which is it, this is a bit about when you try to strip away the consequences of a thing from just stating it outright. Now, they basically said, you know, of these bundles of options, one of them was, for instance, what if there was tariffs of 5%? And that's basically all the talk that there was of the economic consequences of what you were facing, whereas the other bits were you would get rid of free movement, you'd get rid of European Court of Justice, which a lot of Remainers obviously think, or quite a few, sort of think, well, we do have to do that because that's the way the result went. Now, I see why the researchers are doing that. What they're trying to do is not offer leading questions where they could be accused of pushing people in a particular direction. But what that actually serves to do is to not give people any context about what would happen if this took place. The fact that tariffs would go up to 5% matters not a jot compared to the actual consequences of having a hard Brexit. The actual consequences of a hard Brexit are, you know, lorries stacked up on the border, not having any regulators to do the jobs, a complete humiliating catastrophe on the world stage that would absolutely smash us economically and politically. And even just sort of, you know, even sort of morally in the way that we present ourselves to the world as a country that organises itself, that knows what it's doing. So stripping it from that context actually serves to, to sort of mislead people, I think. And yet I, I don't want to be too hard on the researchers because what they're doing is they're taking an extremely complicated area of policy where things go one way or another and people don't have a firm grasp on what the consequences are and exploring, prodding away at different ways of trying to find out what people think. We know that when we do polls, people don't have very clear answers to this. They don't really seem to know what the customs union is. They don't really seem to know what the single market is. So they'll say one thing, well, well absolutely, I want freedom of movement to stop. But then they'll say another thing of like, well, of course, I want tariff-free access and without any restrictions on the border and this was a way of trying to get them to weigh up those things so i don't blame them for pursuing it it's just probably it was a failed experiment and it was grossly misleading it was very telling who seized upon it yes indeed as as proof and actually i have to say buzzfeed didn't do a good job because they had it for two days without the paper coming out so all we had was the buzzfeed report which was not actually particularly useful i thought it was quite badly done and it was only two days later we could actually look at the damn study and after that of course you got days of the press doing their merry way with but there's also these loaded words and i think i think one or two of these may have been used actually in the study but they were certainly used a lot in the reporting and it's certainly used on the kind of labor brexit side a lot um which is this talk of overturning or ignoring the referendum results which is it's sort of it's not really on the table there doesn't seem to be like a practical option that somebody's going to come in you know like the king in the north or whatever is just going to come in and go, <laughs> i overturn this referendum and then kind of walk out 
It's like it's not really an option. And of course, if somebody says somebody asks you, uh, like you said, without perhaps elaborating all of the dire consequences, do you want to overturn or ignore the referendum? You're probably going to, you know, many people are going to say no, even if they don't mm. like the result, because these are very sort of aggressive words and they sort of set up a scenario which is it's not really it's not really on the cards. Like, I don't know who is suggesting. And it's you know, an, artific just it's an artificial limitation. I, my answer would be no, I don't want to overturn the referendum. I'd like to have a second referendum. Yes, exactly. And in fact, there is, I mean, there's one person saying, which is, you know, James Chapman is saying, well, we won't have, and many others actually that I hear say, we won't have another referendum. That's not how we do things in this country. It'll be up to MPs. I get that constitutional argument, but where it leaves us is exactly vulnerable to that retaliatory attack, yep. which is you're trying to overturn the will of people. To me, that is again and again, I have to keep on saying it to remain, it's the reason why a second referendum on the final terms is the only sensible argument that we can make. It's the one that is a forward looking argument about the people have a right to give consent to the specific package, even though they've already given consent to the broad principle of a thing, rather than saying that we're trying to undermine the will of the people. I but think again, we need that, to take good lesson from this and realise the way to go forward. Again, that's a hard sell in a poll, even to say, do you want a second referendum? Some years off from the final deal, when people are just kind of, many people are just sick of this, and they realise there's a lot that they don't understand, and a lot that isn't clear. And so it's not surprising that people that would actually like there to be a different result are going, are not leaping into the idea of a second referendum. That there's, a, there's just a lot of kind of very straight questions being asked and they're being reported as if just like, this is very, very simple and people are very adamant and it means they're mm. never, ever, ever going to want a second referendum. It's just that... It's just that horrible problem that happens again and again of just sort of blatant misreporting of, of data. Yes, although, but, but we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be complacent about it. We do clearly have a lot of work to do, as you're mm, sort, of mm, sure. sort of saying there. And we do need to make clear what the consequences are, as well as so when people feel them, we don't allow, as they've been trying to do this week, like that absurdly stupid Bernard Jenkins interview on Radio 4 of blaming the EU for the logical consequences of the decisions which we ourselves have taken. People do need to be informed so that they realise the causation of the situation, why it is taking place. But nevertheless, it is true that it, at the moment we're struggling to poll, we're struggling to find out what it is that people think, and we have a massive weakness on precisely the idea yeah. that you're raising of it looking like cheating if you propose another referendum or a vote in Parliament or whatever else to add scrutiny to the process. Nobody yeah, likes to be told, and even worse, nobody likes to be shown they have been wrong. <laughs> I'm afraid this is yeah. where we That's are today. Nature. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. And that's our show. Thanks to our special guest, football writer and French person, Philippe Auclair. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you fancy for the Premier League this year? Uh, you could make one up, to be honest. No, no, I, I, I fancy Manchester United. I, 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 I am not a Manchester United supporter, but I fancy them to be champions. Yes, indeed. I was going to there say the same thing. Put, put, your, put your rapidly depreciating pound sterling on Man U. <laughs> and thanks as ever to Peter Collins and Ian Dunt, the Reeves and Mortimer of Brexit. Does that make you Judge Nutmeg or Wavy Davy or maybe Morrissey the Consumer Monkey? <laughs> I think uh, just bald Matt Lucas, just ah, okay. shouting and hitting things. <laughs> That's good. Uh, we will return next week to continue the important work of subverting democracy. Remember, you can hear this episode and all of our shows at audioboom.com slash channel slash Romaniacs dash podcast. We're going to end with a reason to be cheerful. This week, it's Ian's turn. Ah, yes. Um, the thing that made me happy this week is uh, the Hamilton soundtrack. So I'm a little bit... 
sort of I'm a little bit late to this really this has been around for quite a while and I typically avoid musicals like The Plague because of you know dreadful afternoons spent as a child being forced to watch sort of Phantom of the Opera or whatever and I eventually got into this which sort of mixes up hip hop and Broadway musicals in a way that sort of elevates both art forms and I mention it here I sort of managed to get out and then I got sucked back in and it's become this thing that I just cannot stop listening to all the time it is so profoundly beautiful and intelligent and different and, and just absolutely inspiring, uh, especially for political geeks, because there's one number on there that's literally about passing legislation. It's the most incredible thing for, for anyone. <laughs> there's a line in the middle of it that just says, immigrants, we get the job done. And every time that line comes on, I have to punch the air. And it is one of the small things that has been getting me through this Brexit nightmare. Good stuff. Thanks, Ian. Continuing our new tradition of sign-offs in different European languages, but not by me. Here is listener Anders Andersen seeing us off in Danish. Tak for at I lyttede med. På gensyn næste gang. And that means thanks for listening. See you next time. Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky, Ian Dunt and Peter Collins. It's produced by Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.